Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. I'm Larry Bobo, Dean of the Social Sciences in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. My guests are Professor Edward Glazer, who is the Fred and Eleanor Glimpf Professor of Economics in our Department of Economics, and David Cutler, who is the Otto Eckstein Professor of Applied Economics in our Department of Economics. And together, they've written a fascinating new book entitled Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. This is really an exciting um, piece of work, and I have to say I learned a tremendous amount from it. But let me kind of start out at the top and say this book reflects a joining of the career projects of a health economist on the one hand and an urban economist on the other. And it's clear that, that you both share a deep love of cities and what they provide for individual lifestyles as well as the broader collective well-being. So tell me about how and why you were drawn to this project at this time. And let me just say, as I read the book, I got a feel of a real sense of urgency and concern for the future that prompted your work here. Uh, certainly. I mean, it, it was both the immediate impact of COVID-19 and I think pre-existing concerns that both of us had that cities in some sense felt like they were falling apart a little bit before uh, 2020. Cities are you know, defined, at least by economists, as the absence of physical space between people. They are density, proximity, closeness. And social distancing was, in a sense, the rapid fire de-urbanization of the world. And on top of that, you know, for at least 10 years, there's been the sense that while cities have proven remarkably successful uh, economically, uh, that success has not spread to everyone and has been accompanied with, you know, the pain of affordability uh, problems, the crisis over gentrification, uh, policing, which is often brutal and even sometimes, you know, almost senseless. So these things came together and created, I think, for, for both of us, a sense of urgency. I'll just say, you know, Larry, one of the things we're, we, all of us are fortunate in that we have positions where we get to spend our time thinking and doing research and teaching and so on. And sometimes we do it to students in a class. And then sometimes we say, you know, I want to teach and I want to think and share that with the public at large. And so we're just blessed to be able to do that. And maybe, maybe some of what we do here can spark some discussions uh, or obviously at Harvard, but around the around the country, around the world, and if so, that would be a good thing. Fantastic, just just fantastic. Let me let me draw out one one further aspect of this. Now, I, I I gather the two of you have collaborated on some work in the past, but what was kind of exciting about this merging of health economics and urban economics, and if I may, were there some challenges <laughs> in bringing you two together for this project? Well, we've, we've worked together for almost 30 years now. So we, we worked on, on uh, segregation in the American city in, in the 90s. We worked on obesity in the 2000s. And we, we had been working on a, on a paper, which is now out on uh, opioid overdoses and uh, the rise of this opioids in, in the last five years. So this is an old collaboration. And I think, at least for me, it was a particular blessing to, you know, 
reconnect with David during this time of social distancing. That it's it's great to have an old friend who it's it's easy to work with, and um, you know obviously it's not you know we don't agree on everything, but uh, I'll let David say the things that we don't agree on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was plenty. There's plenty. You know, at, at, just in terms of general predisposition towards the world, I tend to be a little bit more activist. Ed tends to be a little bit uh, more libertarian about it. <clears throat> there, as we were writing things, we kept going back and forth about things like. You know, if big banks needed less space in an urban area, how was that going to be bad? Would their offsets that would be good and so on? I never did convince Ed that he should be a fan of single payer health care. <laughs> um, so there were there were lots of those discussions that went back and forth. But you know, I would say I certainly um, learned an enormous amount. And it, it you know the way that just to come back to our job at, as academics. The way I often learn the most is by talking with people in who do not study the same thing I do, who really come with very different perspectives and say, you know, isn't it difficult that we don't have answers to this sort of question? And so, so it's really it, behind all the disagreements are just this fundamental sense of being forced to think through these issues and, and trying to explain why you think something happens the way it does or something could happen better if we did it differently. Yes, that's terrific. Did did um, I, I think, as I said at, at the outset, there was a feeling of kind of urgency to the project. And I know that feeling of urgency is in many respects tied to the, 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 the core problem of the book in many ways, uh, which is how we manage a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But, but before I turn to some more detailed aspects of the book, why would that worry about the pandemic uh, bring you two to a deep concern about the future and fate of cities, if I may. You know, contagion has long been a companion of urban life, um, and uh, you know we we get sick from being around other people a great deal of the time, and so you know it's a very natural reaction to a pandemic to want to separate yourself from other people and and even to want to head for the hills. Moreover, there was a lot of worry, and there still is, that this thing that we're doing right now, connecting remotely, right, over, over Zoom, will come to replace face-to-face -face contact and the cities that enable that contact. So I think there's sort of these two threats that are bubbling around, both the disease directly and the associated risks with remote work. David, did you want to add? Oh, well, I was going to say the scare scenario is not that we'll all go, go back to rural living because we're not going to go back to rural living. The scare scenario is that we're so afraid of pandemic disease that we set up enclaves. That you know, rich people live in one area and it's gated, and only certain people are allowed in, and so on. And middle-income people get a different area, which is less well guarded and protected, and so on. And then lower-income people get what's left, and that would be a huge shame for society. You know, you sort of certainly see it in some lower-income cities around the world where you know. Where, where, where it's very extreme that way. And so the, I think part of the urgency is that we have to figure out how to let us all live together because living apart is not going to be very good. Yeah. You know, and a, and a policy that relates to this that was being pushed in the middle of the pandemic by the mayor of Paris and many other people was this idea of 15 minute cities, which, you know, often have rolled up into it, things that are attractive, pedestrian space, relaxing uh, zoning that enables more you know, stores, cafes to be interspersed with residential uh, life. But if you think about it, 
carving up a metropolitan area into 15-minute cities is the last thing we should be doing. I mean, that's a world of sort of elite, uh, privileged neighborhoods and one in which ones in which kids are going to grow up essentially cut off from the economic mainstay of the uh, uh, of the city. So, you know, another world for 15 minute cities is is segregation. Uh And uh, it's something that we should really be, I think, very, very, very uh, doubtful of. Very wary about. Absolutely. So let me turn now to the three big types of themes uh, you, you two set out at the beginning of the book. Uh, and I'm going to kind of use my words here uh, in some respect more more than your own. And essentially, you suggest that first, in order for cities to beat back the crisis of something like the COVID-19 pandemic, they really must be well-governed, mindful, and effective in addressing the well-being of everyone, not just the few or the elite. That secondly, in order to survive, cities must be places where people can flourish, where there are real chances to innovate and experiment, to move ahead, indeed, to experience uh, uh, social mobility, um, and uh, especially not encounter such steep regulatory constraint or hard-edged state policing practices that end up driving wedges or cleavages uh, into the population that create kind of clear protected insiders or winners on the one hand, and extruded outside, outsiders or losers on the other. And then thirdly, uh, we have to adopt a kind of learning posture, an information and knowledge-based approach that, that relies on science, but a science that is also honest about its own limitations. So tell me a bit about how those three themes weave together your analysis of COVID-19 and the survival of the city. So, um... We, we were, I think, struck above all by um, the sort of failure of our, of our governments to be effective guardians of our health, right? We were struck by the fact that we spend so many trillions of dollars on healthcare and we ended up with this disaster. We were struck simultaneously by the fact that our governments were, you know, seemed weak in part because they weren't learning, because they weren't thinking about this as a knowledge problem, the way that they were, for example, in New Zealand, right? That they didn't think that we had to test the asymptomatic, for example. Um, and so we were making reopening decisions based on hope rather than based on some degree of, of knowledge. And finally, we were struck that our, our governments seemed to be much more focused on the needs of, a, of an elite few rather than taking care of outsiders. In the early days of the, of the pandemic, sort of the biggest outsiders were the nursing home residents. They were the people who were the sort of biggest victims. And if you think about sort of the single most obvious error that our public sector made during the early months of the pandemic, it was not to protect the nursing homes, right? Many other things are debatable, but that one was just a catastrophic health event. And so that naturally leads you to, at least leads us to thinking that we just need to, to have an open discussion about how our, you know, how our shared strength, how our public sector requires the kind of muscles that it needs to provide protection and opportunity for ordinary people. One of the themes that I guess really resonated with me, I mean, they all do, but one that really resonated with me is the idea that for many problems, we know some of the answer. You know, so how do you protect us in in the case of pandemic? We kind of know the answer. And, you know, is it a good or a bad idea to lock up millions of young, predominantly African-American men for nothing more than 
looking the wrong way or, or you know, walking the wrong way or something. We kind of know, we, we, we absolutely know the answer. But the competence to carry out what we need to do is often limited. And so a big theme to me is that we need government that obviously has vision, but that also has competence to do the things that we need done. And this strikes me as a moment in history where actually doing what we know how to do is as important as coming up with new answers. That's not true about every social problem. Like for example, on climate change, we really need to develop better batteries and better solar power. And you know, those are scientific engineering type issues. But on things like, you know, how do you do contact tracing or how do you do testing of asymptomatic people so that you can observe the spread of disease? Um, those are things we do know how to do and we just need to be able to do them right all the time. I got it. I, you know, this is this is very reminiscent of a mantra I have about city government, which is that capacity is almost always more important than policy, which just means that the ability to actually follow through, the ability to actually implement something is often far more important than just having a clever idea. Let me let me dig in on a point I think you made a, a little earlier, Ed. The, the, you, you write at one point, quote, as long as people have lived in cities, they have battled infectious disease. And the book is truly replete, especially in the early chapters, with examples of pandemic spread and the rise and fall, or in some cases, resilience of cities. So, so what are the key historical cases that inform your thinking about how cities today should more effectively plan for and address a global pandemic like COVID-19, because of course we are at the risk of more variants emerging and other new uh, pandemic threats in the future. So uh, to, to look back a bit, um, uh, in, in what sense do major events in human experience like the Black Plague or the spread of cholera teach us about dealing with serious contemporary health threats like COVID-19? Great, so, so the first, point I think I take away from the history is that the impact of plague, like I think all natural disasters, is mediated by the strength of civil society when the disaster hits. And I think for me at least, the plagues that make that point are um, uh, the plagues of sort of antiquity. So if I think about sort of two fairly catastrophic plagues, the plague of Athens, which is our first well-documented uh, urban plague in 430 BCE, uh, really destabilizing for that city, which had been really, you know, a magical place for human creativity, uh, just a magical place for showing all that cities can do to uh, hyperpower human imagination. And yet, because the plague strikes at a moment when they are, you know, at war with Sparta, it ends up being quite destabilizing. Athens does soldier on for another quarter century, but, you know, it, it never really attains its former glory and it sort of merges from, sort of descends from being maybe the New York City of the, of the Eastern Mediterranean to then being, I don't know, maybe the New Haven. Uh, the uh, um, even worse. I like that comparison. Yeah. <laughs> even even worse would be the the plague of Justinian, 541 CE, um, which strikes during this moment in which the emperor Justinian is trying to reimpose the Pax Romana on uh, the on the Mediterranean world. Um, and you know, just as he sends his Belisarius off to reconquer North Africa and reconquer Italy, Yersinia Pestis, the Black Death, makes its first appearance on European shores, and it is devastating. Like push, pushes things over the edge. By contrast, you know, the Antonine Plague, which strikes in the second century, 
during the era of the four good emperors. You know, this is the time that Gibbon extolled as being the happiest time in human existence. Yeah, it's a human devastating event. It's a, it's a human catastrophe, but it doesn't, you know, rock society in the same way. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, the, the disease that hit in 2021, where were we on this spectrum of resilience versus, versus uh, uh, weakness? And I, I think at least for us, uh, it felt as if we were far less resilient because we were far less united than we had been, let's say 20 years ago when the terrorist hit the Twin Towers. In terms of urban responses, for me at least, and I think for David as well, it's cholera. Cholera is where you really see, see cities come to the, the fore. And you know, the early 19th century is this period of sort of proto-globalization where connections across continents are enabling diseases typically to move from tropical areas to non-tropical areas. That's not necessarily the pattern throughout history. Of course, you know, Europeans brought smallpox and, and measles to the, you know, to the new world, killing millions. Uh, so, and many, we may have had many other plagues that went to the tropics from Europe that just weren't documented, but both cholera and yellow fever emerge out of the, out of tropical areas. They come to the cities of the uh, Eastern seaboard and you get this really hinge of history where you know, pretty much prior to 1800, all that governments did was kill people in terms of their main activities, right? You know, we remember Frederick the Great's delightful letters to Voltaire, but you know, his main job was conquering Silesia from the uh, Holy Roman Empire, right? That was his main from the, from the Habsburg. Uh, his main job was conquest. But then all of a sudden in the 19th century, cities came together and often it's from the bottom up. It's people like Dr. Stephen Smith who does this, you know, absolutely like careful scrutiny of the hygienic problems in New York's poorer neighborhoods that builds the public case for really massive investments in public health. I mean, David's old work, which found huge positive effects of water infrastructure on mortality in the 20th century. The work of our colleagues, Marcy Olson and Claudia Golden shows that, you know, sewers then complemented the clean water to create, create added health. This was unbelievable expensive undertakings, but unbelievably effective. And they sort of, to, to us, show a model of what cities can do when they're struck with plague to actually come together, invest, and make sure that, that urbanization can continue without that threat of contagion. So what, what, what made that capacity to, to come together and to make big investments? You point to, to civil society, but but what are the, the qualities that, that needed to be in place to kind of knit together a well-functioning uh, civil order? You, uh, most of the leaders were reasonably well-educated. So you had sort of an, an educated system that was starting to work. So Dr. Stephen Smith's a doctor. Stephen Allen works his way up as a, as a sale maker. So he's, he's actually an entrepreneur. He's the, the mayor who then becomes um, the, the sort of arch advocate of the product. Um, Stephen Allen, among his most notable features is he was a, a member of a vast number of organizations that knit New York together. He led some of them, he joined many of them, and it really is sort of a Bob Putnam feel of like the, just the tentacles, the ties are everywhere. And they enable him to build the support for this, this aqueduct. And I think they're all sort of a sense that they were all in it together that there was no sense in which they could retreat to an enclave and protect themselves. That, you know, a disease that starts anywhere can infect anyone in New York. And so they really did need to make investments for the whole of the, of the city. And I think that was also absolutely crucial. Let's also remember it took many years. I mean, it's not as if it, it happened uh, easily. And um, just, you know, one of the things that I sort of found ironic was that many of the early investments were actually based on a medical mistake 
um, that which was the miasma theory of illness. So whereas you know two big theories going around in the early 19th century, contagion, which turned out to be medically right, miasma, which is the disease comes out of the fetid airs, which turns out to be uh, to be wrong. It was really the miasma theorists who were pushing to drain the swamp, who were pushing to build the aqueducts and build the sewers, and it turned out that they got it, the public health right, even though they got the actual contagion wrong. But I think the, the larger thing that you even learned from that is you just had a, had a group of people who were actually fighting over knowledge and were trying to figure out what was right. And eventually with Dr. Snow in, in London, they actually did figure out how uh, cholera was spread. Thank you. Um, let me shift gears a little bit now. Now, uh, Ed, you've spoken a lot about uh, what we think of as in some ways the infrastructure of cities, kind of both kind of investments in physical facilities like water purification systems or sewage systems and so on, and uh, the structure of government and the networks there that, that allow coordinated effective action as being important to surviving uh, or managing something like, like COVID-19. I, I want to shift gears away from kind of those features of cities as big, teeming, dynamic, physical, geographic spaces and governing units to a far more micro individual level approach because part of what you two end up focusing on in the book though i know this is going to be directed more at, at david here is that individual bodies resources and vulnerability are also a critical ingredient of the story here and the likely consequences of uh, an illness like um, COVID-19. So literally you write that urban living can contribute to making our own bodies less safe. Um, in one passage you write, urban innovations include not only art and philosophy, but also the Oreo cookie and the open air drug market. And one might say uh, the Big Mac and French fries too. Um, and, you know, supersized uh, sodas. So we know that folks uh, leaping ahead here, who who have a variety of pre-existing conditions, such as a compromised immune system, diabetes, uh, uh, obesity, who are lifelong smokers, faced a much greater risk of severe illness and death uh, in connection to, to COVID-19. Uh, so thinking about that nexus of concerns, how does your analysis then link individual health and health-related behaviors to cities and the management of pandemics? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating issue. I, I, I think what it says is that we're only as safe as the least, we're only as healthy as the least healthy among us in an era of pandemic disease. One of the interesting things about COVID-19, of course, is that it was originally spread by higher income people moving around the world in and out of Wuhan, China. The strain on the East Coast likely came from Italy, from vacationers in Italy and came back. The first big outbreak in the US was in Westchester County, uh, very uh, well-to-do suburb just north of New York City. But then of course, like everything else, it became concentrated, deaths and illness became concentrated in lower income populations. If you look at New York City, which we spend some time looking at in the book, the more dense areas of New York City, particularly in Manhattan, that tend to be fairly wealthy, actually had relatively low rates of COVID deaths. And the reason is that people could stay at home. That's where people could Zoom to work. Zoom is not a full substitute for going to work, but it's certainly um, a remedial uh, subsidy. People didn't have to ride the subway when they wanted to get out. They could um, 
uh, go in cars and, and other transportation. Um, and and the, the areas of New York City that wound up being the least healthy are the areas in the Bronx and in um, uh, upper Manhattan and Queens and so on, where um, health has always been poor, where people live in crowded environments, where uh, there are multi-generational housings where people are taking public transportation, where there are high risks of uh, pre-existing illness like diabetes and obesity. Those matter for COVID-19. Other things like smoking will matter for other respiratory diseases. Uh, unsafe sexual contact matters for the spread of HIV. Sharing needles matters for the spread of HIV. So it's not just any, it's not just one risk factor, it's anything. And I think what this says is that um, we, when we think about cities and we think about the health of cities, just like a century ago, as you were talking about, uh, and Ed was mentioning, we had to think about cholera and water supply. Um, and you know, if, if the water is not clean everywhere, then nowhere is safe. Here, I think we have to think about the same thing, which is that if there's a part of New York City, of Brownsville in New York City, or Roxbury in, in the Boston area, or Dorchester, or Mattapan, if, or Chelsea, if East LA, if any part of the city is not safe, that puts everyone at risk. And so a lot of what we've thought of as private behavior, how much one eats, how, whether one smokes, whether one drinks and so on, has, um, it is, we, we're recognizing that that's more public behavior than we thought. And so we need to think about health-related behaviors. Fortunately, we know a fair amount about that. So one of the things that we know very, very strongly is that a, an immensely important correlate of, um, of healthy behavior is education. So people who have more years of education are much healthier. They smoke less, they drink less, they overeat less, they don't use drugs in excess and so on. So education here is something that we think of as a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a treatment, if you will. It's kind of like a pill in that sense in that it just seems to have all these, all these benefits. Um, and another thing we talk about is that we are going to have to be better at policing the things that companies can do. So as you mentioned, it's, you know, particularly with addictive goods, it's once people get started, it's very hard to stop. So you can't let someone through false pretenses, you know, start an addiction and then come back and say, oh, well, sorry, I guess I made a mistake or now I've stopped doing that. That's, that, that doesn't work when the good spreads from person, when the item spreads from person to person or, or people find it difficult to quit. So we're gonna have to have a, a more muscular regulatory system that says, um, you can't just, if you will, introduce a virus into a city or into a population, the virus in this case being a thing that you claim is good for you, but is not actually good for you and, and you really knew wasn't that good for you. So I think on both the education side and on the, the, the regulation and monitoring side, we're going to have to be a lot better because private health just isn't as private as we had thought it was. Now I I see. Let me, let me. There are a whole bunch of features in, embedded in what you've just out, outlined for us. So let me try one thing. This is a piece of the book where you don't so much go through the detail of it, but you report on work you've done analyzing Social Security record data, right, to uh, get a real grip on uh, life expectancy as tied to um, your placement in particular geographic spaces. So. Uh, um, talk to me a bit about what what kind of analytical leverage and power having access to, to this level of extensive record data allowed and to some of the specifics of, of the results. Like, you know, I think m most people off the top of their head might say, depending on your tastes, of course, that, that the choice between living in 
Nevada and all the options in Las Vegas sounds far more exciting than those in Utah and what you might find in Provo. But <laughs> you might tell folks something different, especially if they wanted a long life after the age of 40. Yes. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the famous example from uh, economist Victor Fuchs is, of course, about Nevada and Utah, where the weather is similar and uh, medical care systems are similar. But of course, people live a lot longer in Utah than they do in Nevada. It's even, you know, if you will, it's even worse than that. So if you take any big city, I don't care where it is, I don't care if it's in the US or elsewhere, I don't care if it's a rich city in New York or Boston, if it's an educated city, if it's a lower income city, I don't care where it is. Within that city, you will see huge disparities in health. Um, so just to give you an example, uh, in a typical city, again, this is true of New York, it's true of St. Louis, it's true of Atlanta, wherever it is, you can go in New York City, you can go say 10 miles from downtown Manhattan to uh, parts of the Bronx, you can go 10 miles and lose 10 years of life expectancy, just living in one versus the other. Just to give you a sense wow. about what 10 years means, if you, a lifetime smoker lives about seven years less than a non, than a non smoker. And if you cured all cancer in the country, if you got rid of single cancer death in the country, the average person would live three years longer. So the difference between Brownsville, New York and the Upper East Side is roughly three times every death from cancer. My goodness. So these are just immense differences. Like literally you're on the subway for 10 minutes or 10 or you know half an hour and you lose 10 years of life expectancy and that's true everywhere. And it's and it's true in London and it's true in Paris and it's true in Oslo and it's true in Mexico City and so on. And so that is just, those are things that we can get from the detailed social security records. And we know, you know, you can, using those and other records, you can pinpoint what's going on. It's not violence. I mean, there's some increase in violence, but far more is heart disease. Why? Because obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure untreated and so on and so forth. And so those are things that cities are gonna have to, every city is gonna have to figure out how to deal with. Um, if, if, if there's maybe any good news, it's that if we now recognize this, maybe we'll all agree that yes, we can devote more resources to that because not just on humanitarian grounds, but on personal interest grounds, you know, even if I'm Scrooge incarnate, I, I still have to care a lot about what goes on in lower income areas because there's no, you know, what we know is that people mix with everyone in a city, whether you do it directly or you do it, you know, second or third hand there is everyone is interacting with everyone so if i want to be safe i have to think about those yeah um that is just um e extraordinary so uh i'm, I'm going to want to come back to this issue of um regulation and monitoring kind of what happens there because there's clearly a tension right because on on as you draw out in the book in several other ways you want cities to be spaces in which entrepreneurialism is really facilitated and people are capable of trying lots of things to try to get ahead, to improve their lives. And sadly, I'm sure in some circumstances, that means marketing harmful things uh, to people that on the other hand, you're suggesting we ought to be pretty quick to, to nip in the bud, uh, so to speak. So Ed, Ed um, accuses me of being the closet socialist. So I'm going to let him. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is true. Actually, the, probably the area in which we, we have the most divergence is 
Um, it, it's not so much there are, there are health regulations in which we're exactly at the same place. So, you know, for example, the 19th century regulations that required tenement owners to connect to the water system. No problem with that whatsoever. Strongly, strongly endorse both of us. It's it's more the stuff around, you know, food that that tends to get me a little bit, a little bit anxious. The libertarian part of me uh, uh, tends to get a little bit anxious. But I think we should be able as a society to be smart enough to recognize that there are things that we want to regulate and things that we don't want to regulate. And it's, you know, I, I am, I think we both were a little tired of a, you know, longstanding political narrative, which is it's all about big government versus small government. W what we need is better government. What we need is actually serious analysis applied to regulations so that we don't actually, you know, impose rules that stymie entrepreneurship at, in the name of allegedly protecting people's health. I feel the same way about, about prison sentences. I mean, the, the, you know, we went back to the sort of 1980s. And when you look at the, the things that motivated the three strikes and you're out crusade, right? These were awful murders. The, the sex offenders who perpetrated them shouldn't have been on the street. But the idea that you're going to, you know, then draw from that, that yes, there are some serial sex offenders who really are unsafe enough that you want to lock up to then say, oh, every three-time pot dealer you want to lock up, that's just stupid. And, and it's sort of the same point about regulation. We should be able to be, be smart enough to distinguish good from bad. Absolutely. For those who are not watching but listening, I'm in wholehearted agreement. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Let me shift off of the more individual level, um, David, that, that we were focused on a moment ago, and now think more at the level of, of healthcare systems, our investments in healthcare, and social policy that guides, guides healthcare. So the book stresses that the design and investment in healthcare systems obviously plays a huge role in the likely course and impact of a health challenge like a, a pandemic. Uh, and indeed, there are some quite striking patterns here you cite to, to drive home this point, where the U.S. is clearly greatly disadvantaged relative to our other modern Western industrial peers. You write, quote, over 350,000 Americans died from COVID-19 in 2020. Adjusted for the higher U.S. population, this death rate was more than double that of Germany or Canada, even though Germany spends one-third less than the U.S. on medical care and Canada spends half as much. The U.S. death rate was literally 33 times higher than the rate in Japan and 50 times higher than the rate in South Korea. Singapore and Taiwan collectively lost fewer than 40 people to COVID-19 in 2020. The city of Lubbock, Texas, with one one-hundredth of the population of these two countries, had 10 times more deaths. Explain this, this just profound uh, disparity and one that I really don't think has registered in much of the public discourse about COVID-19. They are shocking numbers. And, you know, even writing them, you can tell from the from, from, from it that even just writing them, like the shock that we were experiencing is coming through. I think there are a couple of issues there. One is that the US public health system really performed poorly. Um, in part, it was from the top level down, that is the president and the senior leaders of the administration were not, um, uh, were not doing everything, were not doing many things right if, uh, at all. But also the system itself was slow 
It made mistakes. For example, the first tests for COVID were um, uh, contaminated and it took some amount of time to figure that out. So we weren't doing testing. Um, there was contradictory advice given about some things. It was not clear who was in charge, not clear whether the advice that was given was truly scientific advice or not. You know, one of our big themes in this book, as we were talking about, is science needs to be done by people who are competent in doing the science, not politically, and so on. I, I also think, so it's sort of specific mistakes that happen. But I think in general, one of the things that, that, that comes across to me in looking at it is how grossly underfunded the public health system is. So just to think not just about the US for a second, the, the World Health Organization's entire budget, its entire budget is smaller than the budget of Mass General Brigham Hospital. Goodness. So it, it's just the, the scale of it. And so what happens is literally the public health system hangs by a thread. You know, there's just like a very small thing supporting it. And if anything goes wrong, then the whole thing falls apart. So it's it would be the equivalent as if we had only one hospital that could uh, treat you know, a particular disease in a city. And then if the power went out, sorry, you're just stuck, you don't get treated. Now you hope the power doesn't go out, but still like you gotta prep for the power maybe going out. And so what we've observed about our public health systems is that they were not prepared, not even for the power going out. They were not prepared for a warm day where people wanted to run their air conditioners a little bit more. So uh, that so so part of it is our failure as a society to have a, a, a to think about public health that way. And we grew way too complacent because, you know, it had been so successful. We hadn't had any pandemic it, respiratory infections, HIV AIDS, was, but we hadn't had pandemic respiratory quite a long time. I think the other part though, is that if you say sort of, why was it so underfunded? What basically happens in medical care, in healthcare is that the medicine part eats up the public health part. So of the $4 trillion roughly that we spend on medical care, the, you know, 95 plus percent of it is treating individual disease when people get sick. And maybe 2% is the public health system. And as the medical care part grows over time, we look for savings. Those savings come out of the public health system because, you know, that's the same branch of government uh -huh. and so on. And so that's where you, you, I, you know, I, I took out this sentence at one point where you talk about the, the trouble we have now is that our vast ocean of healthcare spending uh, needs to do more to deliver health rather than just paying for sickness. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, and one way to think about it is like the car is on autopilot, right? Like, you know, it does what it wants to do and then people pay for it. And we, we never have anything that big, you know, the government pays for half of medical care, so it's close to $2 trillion. And it has very little control over where that $2 trillion is spent. And so, uh, and so, of course, you wind up with spending in some areas where you don't need it and not spending in other areas where you do need it and trying to do things at the margin. And it was, as we talk in the book, it was perfectly designed to give that, that answer. So it was perfectly designed to do that, but it's just terrible because it now then means that in a pandemic, we can't afford to do what we need to do. We're not prepared to do it. The medical system is all out of whack. So it's sort of a structural problem as well as specific failures in this pandemic. Um, let me shift gears to, to two other domains of issues that we have touched on in, in small ways in earlier parts of our discussion here. Uh, one concerns the basic changing organization of work and the economy and its implications. So you provocatively title one chapter of the book, 
do robots spread disease? And at one level, I'm tempted to ask, why is that the, the question? <laughs> really, what is, it, what is it about the transformation of economies from agricultural labor systems to large-scale, often urban industrial manufacturing platforms to now an increasingly service-oriented economy that affects the risks, the manifestation, and dynamics of a pandemic like COVID-19. And I guess maybe, Ed, this is more your bailiwick here. So um, it, it both relates to the spreading of the disease and it, it relates to the economic impact of the disease. So if we think about the Black appearance in Europe in 1350, it's a demographic disaster, perhaps a third, perhaps 40% of Europe dies. Um, but it's not an economic disaster for those people who survive at all, because in an economy marked by subsistence agriculture, wealth is determined by land per person. And when the number of people shrinks radically, person goes radically up and uh, consequently wages got bit up massively. And in some sense, there's at least a, a hypothesis that the rising wages of the late 14th century fueled the demand for luxury goods, which gave us the burst in urbanization in the 15th century, which gave us the, the urban renaissance. Flash forward to 1918, 1919, when we moved into an industrial economy, and it's really the work of Chicago Federal Reserve Bank economist Francois Veld, which provides our sort of best fine-grained picture of this. It's a shock to the industrial economy when pandemic shows up. The influenza epidemic certainly shuts down coal mines, it shuts down factories, but they recover remarkably quickly, partially because no one stops demanding an icebox because of influenza. No one stopped demanding a Model T Ford. And you know when it was safe for the factories to start producing again, and even when it wasn't safe, they were making, out, making Model T Fords yet again. And so the economy recovered really, really quickly. Now, we saw the same resilience in demand for durable goods during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? In fact, we had a, a durable goods boom during uh, various points in the, in the pandemic. Um, but what had changed over the last 100 years was that automation and outsourcing meant that those factory jobs had largely disappeared. And America, although it remains an industrial powerhouse, it does so far more often with machines than with human beings. Whereas for less skilled Americans, for less skilled people throughout the world, they have found the ability to serve a latte with a smile is an employment safe haven, despite the disappearance of those factory jobs. And yet those jobs, those urban service jobs, 32 million of them in the US before 2020, one fifth of the employed labor force, those urban service sector jobs can disappear in a heartbeat when that smile turns into a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. And that's exactly what we saw during the early months of the pandemic. The incredible shutdown of small businesses in the US, the incredible dislocation of our whole sort of urban service economy. And that's not even over, right? We feel very much when you walk around many downtowns, the disruption continues. The, the biggest one is actually the, the business travel sector, which is still very, very much you know, not back to normal and may well never recover uh, back to normal. But really the evolving nature of work has made us more vulnerable to disease. And of course, there's the other uh, part, which is in fact, our triumph over disease made it possible for us to change the way we work, right? And that's, that's been true as well. Yeah, let me, let me go to the other kind of big remaining category of analysis here and then, then try to get some big general observations out of this. At many points in the book, you talk about tensions between the status of insiders and outsiders, winners in effect and losers. Um, 
And in a way, I want to put the question in this way. So how do the story of the community of Boyle Heights in Los Angeles and the murder of George Floyd uh, in Minnesota play into the dynamics of our collective capacity to respond to pandemics and maintain a flourishing city life? Well, we saw it certainly after the Floyd protests, which were both understandable, and they didn't seem exactly what, what should be happening in a, in a healthy community that was focused on protecting themselves from, from pandemic. And by, by that, I mean that, you know, it's, it's not that I, I have any problem with the protesters who went out themselves, but rather there shouldn't have been the reason to protest to begin with, right? There shouldn't have been a, a, uh, a, a, a wound like that that ran through America's urban life and has run through it for far too long. Now, the background for that was the fight against crime of the 1980s. And that was a, a fight that was a very important one for, for cities, right? I mean, certainly I remember the New York City of my childhood. I, I went back and gave, a, gave a, uh, a, an address at my high school a couple of years ago, and I was reminding, reminding them that you know, murder rates were many times higher. And one of the signal events of my sophomore year in high school was the triple murder that occurred in the hotel right across the street from the, from the high school where I went to school, right? Just a very different New York. But those urban successes have been done at a fearsome human cost has been done at the cost of imprisoning or incarcerating in different ways millions of young men and uh, treating other millions of other young men with a great deal of brutality. In that sense, we have protected insiders. Uh, we've protected people who are frightened of crime, but we've done so by imposing fearsome costs on outsiders. In the case of housing, which is where, really where I came to this, right? Throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to build housing not because we were being you know, necessarily charitable to outsiders, but because we didn't have a lot of rules and developers wanted to build. And they, you know, because they wanted to make money, they provided space for people to make their way into cities. Over the past 50 years, we have accreted all of these rules that make it you know, harder and harder to add new housing supply. It starts earlier than that, quite honestly. I mean, it starts with Euclidean zoning in the 1920s, which has its roots even in the, the more pernicious racial zoning attempts of the teens, which were struck down by the Supreme Court. But really, these, these barriers to building have become even more uh, onerous, even more powerful over the past 70 years. And they really have the impact of freezing a, a city in amber. And in a sense, they're the backdrop behind the gentrification battles. That sort of taken at a very micro level, it seems as if the battle over Boyle Heights is one that pits Longstanding um, Hispanic residents of Boyle Heights, with their you know, rich cultural heritage, with their beautiful mur murals, against sort of yuppie gentrifiers, and that that is the reality on the ground. But the sort of larger villain isn't you know isn't some young person who wants to you know move into Boyle Heights because he thinks it's a neat neighborhood. That's not an evil impulse, right? The problem is that LA as a whole has made it far too difficult to build, and of course Greater Boston has as well, and so people start looking in Boyle Heights, not because they think it's, it's cultural need, but they're looking for any space that's underpriced. And naturally that's gonna cause an affordability problem there. And so gentrification and affordability are deeply linked. And the ultimate reason for it is the fact that we have put our cities in a regulatory straitjacket because we have protected insiders rather than outsiders. I'll just say one final thing on this, um, around rules involving businesses as well as uh, entrepreneurship, businesses as well as building and about say one final thing about uh, businesses as well as buildings, that it is something of an outrage in this country that we make it so much easier for rich people to be entrepreneurs than we do for poor people to become entrepreneurs. 
And, you know, as you and I both know, you can start your internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm room, and there won't be a lot of regulatory oversight over you for a lot of years. Right? By contrast, if you want to go across the river and in Brighton, you want to start some business that actually sells milk products, you need about 15 permits to get through. Um, that seems infamous to me. And, you know, I, I was very involved in a, a, a mission to create a uh, innovation district probably around Roxbury, this was joined with John Barrows, this, the Boston City's business chief about six or seven years ago, where the goal was very much to have something that would combine vocational training with one-stop permitting for uh, you know, just ordinary businesses that wanted to, get, wanted to get started. And so I think really we have to have an agenda, which is making our cities open for outsiders in the future. And that means you know, rethinking our, our crime-related policies. It means rethinking our business regulatory policies. And I think even most importantly, rethinking our education system so that we do more to provide usable skills for those kids who are born with, with less. Because at least for me, one of the most searing facts that comes out of our colleagues, Nathan Hendren and Raj Shetty's work with the Opportunity Atlas is just how you know, problematic cities look for children, particularly poor children, particularly poor children of color. And uh, so you know, just at the same moment, the cities are doing amazing things for you know, innovation, for, for you know, adults who come, even less well-off adults who come to cities experience wage growth. They really are failing our children. And they really can't be said to be triumphant in any way unless they actually are fulfilling their historic mission of turning poor kids into middle-class adults. So um, I guess I want to end on uh, two questions then. Um, and that really is, uh, in part, how do we get there? I mean, how do we uh, reweave the civic social fabric and culture uh, to create that sense of a common destiny, if you will, that, that if there are clear pockets of our society that are weak and vulnerable, when an illness like COVID comes along, we may think we're secure in our gated communities, but we really, in the long run, probably won't be, <laughs> or not. certainly all of us won't be. Um, if we have governments that are uh, ineffective and detached, that are co-opted by those who have the financial resources and connections to dictate the terms on which decision-making occurs, um, how do we get to, to a, a better posture? And I guess maybe a simpler entree point may be to ask, uh, especially in the light of the level of, of polarization and, and you know inability to act we see at the national level, are there examples of governments taking action at the city or local level or the state level where you see really hopeful signs that the management of these issues is coming together in a more sensible way uh, without the great wedges, without the incredible divides between insiders, outsiders, winners, losers, marginalized uh, elite uh, that, that characterize so much of our our social lives, a capacity to deal with the major healthcare challenge. One of the reasons I love city government is precisely this uh, LaGuardia quote, which I, I, I love, which is that there's no Republican or, or Democratic way to clean up city streets. And historically, city governments have been just much less ideological than national governments. Um, and I think we still see this around us. We're going to see this in, you know, one of our own. Uh, Michelle Wu has just become mayor of mayor of Boston, and she ran a pretty progressive uh, campaign, uh, which was exciting. And I think it got many people, you know, really, really uh, into the idea of a, of a city of Boston that could do more for for uh, for outsiders. 
But now she's going to face the reality of, of running the city. You know, she campaigned in poetry, as Cuomo said, and now she's going to have to govern in prose. And I'm quite hopeful on that. I mean, she's, she's you know, smart, charismatic, and really, really, uh, you know, has, has huge potential to do something good for the, the city. I think we saw good things during COVID for many cities. I mean, New York's effort in terms of getting massive amounts of daycare out for, for many New Yorkers, getting food out for, for thousands and thousands of New Yorkers, it's really a Herculean effort and really unbelievably impressive. So I see a lot to like in cities. I think in terms of what can we do, I mean, just in terms of just engage a little bit more in terms of you know, working to, to make their space better, working to make their space more open, working to make their space more of a, a place of, of learning and creativity and, and fun and joy. David, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so I'll just, my, my thought here is that, um, I suppose in my mind, the big bang is out and incremental progress is in. And that step by step, we have to go where we And we have to say, okay, we think this is the right thing to do. So we're gonna make a step in this direction. And if it turns out to be the right thing to do, like, yes, we're having success with this, then let's take another step in that direction. And if it turns out, let's just say, hey, you know what? That turned out to be wrong. We gotta go back and we gotta go a different way. You know, so I think about the healthcare things. We know things we need to do. We know we need to beef up public health systems. So that's obvious and so we need to do that. And we know we need to take unnecessary expense out of the healthcare system and, and take a lot of the administrative runaround and, and all of that out. And that's gonna be harder, but we have ideas. So we just gotta try them. And if they work, feel good. And if they don't work, hey, that's okay. Things, sometimes things don't work out. And so and, and so I, that's, I think, where, where I think and I, there are examples, you know, for example, many communities have done an extremely good job dealing with people who have, who have uh, drug addiction, potentially homeless because of opioid addiction, getting them into treatment. We've scaled up treatments enormously. That's probably, that's another public health issue that we've done. It, the, the epidemic still rages, but, but we have made more, more progress in some areas than, than, uh, than we had feared we would. And so, and, and that was, as Ed said, because people came together and said, let's take a step. Let's just do it. And if it works, we're gonna do more of it. And if it doesn't work, we're gonna do something different. And so that's kind of my, my mantra about all this. Don't ever be afraid to try and don't be afraid to say, I tried it and it didn't work. And so now I've got to do something else. Terrific. Well, let me thank you both uh, for sitting down for this conversation. And uh, more importantly, for the book itself from which I learned an enormous amount, and I thank all of our colleagues and uh, scholars uh, around the, the country will learn from, and indeed, I think uh, policymakers and the folks who are wrestling on the front line with this issue uh, have a lot that they will take away from this passionate, incredibly engagingly written and in many respects, I, you know, I feel quite authoritative work. So thank you. my congratulations to you both. And thank you for joining this session of Upon Further Reflections.